This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Robert Browning by G. K. Chesterton. Section 10. Chapter 3. Browning and His Marriage. Part 3. Browning's proposals were, of course, as matters stood, of a character to dismay and repel all those who surrounded Elizabeth Barrett. It was not wholly a matter of the fancies of her father. The whole of her family, and most probably the majority of her medical advisers, did seriously believe at this time that she was unfit to be moved, to say nothing of being married, and that a life passed between a bed and a sofa, and avoiding too frequent and abrupt transitions, even from one to the other, was the only life she could expect on this earth. Almost alone in holding another opinion, and in urging her to a more vigorous view of her condition, stood Browning himself. But you are better, he would say. You look so, and speak so. Which of the two opinions of right, of course, is a complex medical matter, into which a book like this has neither the right nor the need to enter? But this much may be stated as a mere question of fact. In the summer of 1846, Elizabeth Barrett was still living under the great family convention which provided her with nothing but an elegant deathbed, forbidden to move, forbidden to see proper daylight, forbidden to receive a friend lest the shock should destroy her suddenly. A year or two later in Italy, as Mrs. Browning, she was being dragged uphill in a wine hamper, toiling up to the crests of mountains at four o'clock in the morning, riding for five miles on a donkey to what she calls an inaccessible volcanic ground not far from the stars. It is perfectly incredible that anyone so ill as her family believed her to be should have lived this life for twenty-four hours. Something must be allowed for the intoxication of a new tie and a new interest in life. But such exaltations can in their nature hardly last a month and Mrs. Browning lived for fifteen years afterwards in infinitely better health than she had ever known before. In the light of modern knowledge, it is not very difficult or presumptuous of us to guess that she had been in her father's house to some extent inoculated with hysteria, that strange affliction which some people speak of as if it meant the absence of disease, but which is in truth the most terrible of all diseases. It must be remembered that in 1846 little or nothing was known of spine complaints such as that from which Elizabeth Barrett suffered, less still of the nervous condition they create, and least of all of hysterical phenomena. In our day she would have been ordered air and sunlight and activity and all the things the mere idea of which chilled the Barretts with terror. In our day, in short, it would have been recognized that she was in the clutch of a form of neurosis which exhibits every fact of a disease except its origin, that strange possession which makes the body itself a hypocrite. Those who surrounded Miss Barrett knew nothing of this, and Browning knew nothing of it, and probably if he knew anything knew less than they did. Mrs. Orr says, probably with a great deal of truth, that of ill health and its sensations he remained pathetically ignorant to his dying day. But devoid as he was alike of expert knowledge and personal experience, without a shadow of medical authority, 
Almost without anything that can be formally called a right to his opinion, he was, and remained right. He at least saw, he indeed alone saw, to the practical centre of the situation. He did not know anything about hysteria or neurosis or the influence of surroundings, but he knew that the atmosphere of Mr. Barrett's house was not a fit thing for any human being, alive, dying, or dead. His stand upon this matter has really a certain human interest, since it is an example of a thing which will from time to time occur, the interposition of the average man to the confounding of the experts. Experts are undoubtedly right, nine times out of ten, but the tenth time comes, and we find in military matters an Oliver Cromwell, who will make every mistake known to strategy and yet win all his battles, and in medical matters a Robert Browning, whose views have not a technical leg to stand on, and are entirely correct. But while Browning was thus standing alone in his view of the matter, while Edward Barrett had to all appearance on his side a phalanx of all the sanities and respectabilities, there came suddenly a new development, destined to bring matters to a crisis indeed, and to weigh at least three souls in the balance. Upon further examination of Miss Barrett's condition, the physician had declared that it was absolutely necessary that she should be taken to Italy. This may, without any exaggeration, be called the turning point and the last earthly opportunity of Barrett's character. He had not originally been an evil man, only a man who, being stoical in practical things, permitted himself, to his great detriment, a self-indulgence in moral things. He had grown to regard his pious and dying daughter as part of the furniture of the house and of the universe, and as long as the great mass of authorities were on his side, his illusion was quite pardonable. His crisis came when the authorities changed their front, and with one accord asked his permission to send his daughter abroad. It was his crisis, and he refused. He had, if we may judge from what we know of him, his own peculiar and somewhat detestable way of refusing. Once, when his daughter had asked a perfectly simple favour in a matter of expediency, permission, that is, to keep her favoured brother with her during an illness, her singular parent remarked that she might keep him if she liked, but that he had looked for greater self-sacrifice. These were the weapons with which he ruled his people. For the worst tyrant is not the man who rules by fear. The worst tyrant is he who rules by love, and plays on it as a harp. Barrett was one of the oppressors, who have discovered the last secret of oppression, that which is told in the fine verse of Swinburne. The racks of the earth and the rods are weak as the foam on the sands. The heart is the prey for the gods, who crucify hearts, not hands. He, with his terrible appeal to the vibrating consciousness of women, was, with regard to one of them, very near to the end of his reign. When Browning heard that the Italian journey was forbidden, he proposed definitely that they should marry and go on the journey together. Many other persons had taken cognizance of the fact, and were active in the matter. Kenyon, the gentlest and most universally complimentary of mortals, had marched into the house and given Arabella Barrett, the sister of the sick woman, his opinion of her father's conduct with a degree of fire and frankness 
which must have been perfectly amazing in a man of his almost antiquated social delicacy. Mrs. Jameson, an old and generous friend of the family, had immediately stepped in and offered to take Elizabeth to Italy herself, thus removing all questions of expense or arrangement. She would appear to have stood to her guns in the matter with splendid persistence and magnanimity. She called day after day, seeking for a change of mind, and delayed her own journey to the continent more than once. At length, when it became evident that the extraction of Mr. Barrett's consent was hopeless, she reluctantly began her own tour of Europe alone. She went to Paris, and had not been there many days, when she received a formal call from Robert Browning and Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who had been married for some days. Her astonishment is rather a picturesque thing to think about. The manner in which this sensational elopement, which was of course the talk of the whole literary world, had been effected, is narrated, as every one knows, in the Browning letters. Browning had decided that an immediate marriage was the only solution, and having put his hand to the plough, did not decline even when it became obviously necessary that it should be a secret marriage. To a man of his somewhat stormily candid and casual disposition, this necessity of secrecy was really exasperating. But every one, with any imagination or chivalry, will rejoice that he accepted the evil conditions. He had always had the courage to tell the truth, and now it was demanded of him to have the greater courage to tell a lie, and he told it with perfect cheerfulness and lucidity. In thus disappearing surreptitiously with an invalid woman, he was doing something against which there were undoubtedly a hundred things to be said. Only it happened that the most cogent and important thing of all was to be said for it. It is very amusing and very significant in the matter of Browning's character to read the accounts which he writes to Elizabeth Barrett of his attitude towards the approaching coup de theatre. In one place he says, suggestively enough, that he does not in the least trouble about the disapproval of her father. The man whom he fears as a frustrating influence is Kenyon. Mr. Barrett could only walk into the room and fly into a passion, and this Browning could have received with perfect equanimity. But, he says, if Kenyon knows of the matter, I shall have the kindest and friendliest of explanations, with his arm on my shoulder, of how I am ruining your social position destroying your health, etc., etc. This touch is very suggestive of the power of the old worldling who could manoeuvre with young people as well as Major Pendennis. Kenyon had indeed long been perfectly aware of the way in which things were going, and the method he adopted in order to comment on it is rather entertaining. In a conversation with Elizabeth Barrett, he asked carelessly whether there was anything between her sister and a certain Captain Cook. On receiving a surprised reply in the negative, he remarked apologetically that he had been misled into the idea by the gentleman calling so often at the house. Elizabeth Barrett knew perfectly well what he meant, but the logical elusiveness of the attack reminds one of a fragment of some Meredithian comedy. The manner in which Browning bore himself in this acute and necessarily dubious position is perhaps more thoroughly to his credit than anything else in his career. He never came out so well in all his long years of sincerity and publicity as he does in this one act of deception. Having made up his mind to that act, he is not ashamed to name it, 
neither on the other hand does he rant about it and talk about philistine prejudices and higher laws and brides in the sight of god after the manner of the cockney decadent he was breaking a social law and he was not declaring a crusade against social laws we all feel whatever may be our opinions on the matter that the great danger of this kind of social opportunism this pitting of a private necessity against a public custom is that men are somewhat too weak and self-deceptive to be trusted with such a power of giving dispensation to themselves we feel that men without meaning to do so might easily begin by breaking a social by-law and end by being thoroughly antisocial one of the best and most striking things to notice about robert browning is the fact that he did this thing considering it as an exception and that he contrived to leave it really exceptional he did not in the least degree break the rounded clearness of his loyalty to social custom it did not in the least degree weaken the sanctity of the general rule at a supreme crisis of his life he did an unconventional thing and he lived and died conventional it would be hard to say whether he appears the more thoroughly sane in having performed the act or not having allowed it to affect him elizabeth barrett gradually gave way under the obstinate and almost monotonous assertion of browning that this elopement was the only possible course of action before she finally agreed however she did something which in its curious and impulsive symbolism belongs almost to a more primitive age the sullen system of medical seclusion to which she had long been subjected has already been described the most urgent and hygienic changes were opposed by many on the ground that it was not safe for her to leave her sofa and her sombre room on the day on which it was necessary for her finally to accept or reject browning's proposal she called her sister to her and to the amazement and mystification of that lady asked for a carriage in this she drove into regent's park alighted walked on to the grass and stood leaning against the tree for some moments looking round her at the leaves and the sky she then entered the cab again drove home and agreed to the elopement this was possibly the best poem that she ever produced browning arranged the eccentric adventure with a great deal of prudence and knowledge of human nature early one morning in september eighteen forty six miss barrett walked quietly out of her father's house became mrs robert browning in a church in marleybone and returned home again as if nothing had happened in this arrangement browning showed some of the real insight into the human spirit which ought to make a poet the most practical of all men the incident was in the nature of things almost overpoweringly exciting to his wife in spite of the truly miraculous courage with which she supported it and he desired therefore to call in the aid of the mysteriously tranquilizing effect of familiar scenes and faces one trifling incident is worth mentioning which is almost unfathomably characteristic of browning it has already been remarked in these pages that he was pre-eminently one of those men whose expanding opinions never alter by a hair's breadth the actual ground plan of their moral sense browning would have felt the same things right and the same things wrong whatever views he had held during the brief and most trying period between his actual marriage and his actual elopement it is most significant that he would not call at the house in wimpole street 
because he would have been obliged to ask if Miss Barrett was disengaged. He was acting a lie. He was deceiving a father. He was putting a sick woman to a terrible risk, and these things he did not disguise from himself for a moment. But he could not bring himself to say two words to a maidservant. Here there may be partly the feelings of the literary man, for the sacredness of the uttered word, but there is far more of a certain rooted traditional morality, which it is impossible either to describe or justify. Browning's respectability was an older and more primeval thing than the oldest and most primeval passions of other men. If we wish to understand him, we must always remember that in dealing with any of his actions, we have not to ask whether the action contains the highest morality, but whether we should have felt inclined to do it ourselves. At length the equivocal and exhausting interregnum was over. Mrs. Browning went for the second time, almost on tiptoe, out of her father's house, accompanied only by her maid and her dog, which was only just successfully prevented from barking. Before the end of the day, in all probability, Barrett had discovered that his dying daughter had fled with Browning to Italy. They never saw him again, and hardly more than a faint echo came to them of the domestic earthquake which they had left behind them. They do not appear to have had many hopes, or to have made many attempts at a reconciliation. Elizabeth Barrett had discovered at last that her father was in truth not a man to be treated with. Hardly, perhaps, even a man to be blamed. She knew to all intents and purposes that she had grown up in the house of a madman. End of chapter 3 End of section 10